0: All right, so we're in a passage where we're going through something what's traditionally called the passion narrative. And uh, the way that Mark has been telling the story about Jesus and the Gospel of Mark has felt like somewhat of a sprint. But now when we get to chapter 14 and we get to this passion narrative, it's actually more like a slow walk in the park. And I think we're supposed to slow down and understand the significance of what Jesus would ultimately experience on the cross. Now, I think most of the time, uh, if you're – from New York, uh, when you're walking in the city and you're only worried about getting from point A to point B, um, it's easy to lose sight of the beauty of the city. And most of the time when we're walking, there's somewhere we need to go and most of the time most of us are probably late to where we need to go so we're in a hurry and we're trying to get there and so we see people, we see all these things as obstacles that get in our way and we don't really enjoy the beauty of the city. But then there are those nights, there are those rare nights where uh, things seem a little peaceful. There's not that many people out. The weather is cool. It's not that humid. You're walking and you see the beautiful city lights. You have nowhere to really go. So you're just taking a, stro- a slow stroll uh, on the sidewalk, walking through the streets. And then you say, wow, this city is truly gorgeous. right? It's a beautiful city that we get to live in. Now, if you're a Christian... I think the danger of approaching a text like this and the danger of approaching the passion narrative is sometimes uh, we read it as if we're sprinting through the streets. Uh, we just kind of want to get to from point A to point B. We kind of just want to see the point and know what we can get out of it. But what I want to encourage you to do, uh, and for the next couple of weeks, even though this may be something that you're very familiar with, is to do this. Uh, don't worry so much about getting from point A to point B, but take that nice stroll on a nice city night, right? Enjoy the beauty of what Mark is teaching us and telling us about Jesus here because indeed it is life transforming. Uh, This is ultimately what Christianity is about. It's about Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying on the cross for us. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very familiar passage where Jesus, he shares a final meal with his disciples. And uh, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, this is probably a very familiar scene to you Leonardo da Vinci's version of this Last Supper is probably the most famous, and it's made its way into pop culture. If you remember many years ago, there's a book called The Da Vinci Code that came out, and uh, this painting played a very prominent role in that story. Uh, And for Christians in particular, this is a very important meal because this is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every month. But even if you are not familiar with those things and you're just a general reader of uh, Mark's narrative, Uh, It's very clear that there's a lot of things that are going on here because it's a meal that's filled with a lot of drama, a lot of tension, right? And the the tension is due to the fact that someone is there who is going to betray him. And so this is Jesus' last meal. This is his most intimate time, his most intimate moments with his disciples before they would ultimately abandon him. And so, uh, again, feel the drama, right? Feel the tension. Now, when we look at this passage, I want to highlight three things in particular. These will be our three points. Uh, The first thing I want us to look at is an old tradition. The second thing is a new meaning, and finally, a future celebration. Okay? So, old tradition, new meaning, and a future celebration. The first thing we're told here is that Jesus and the disciples, they're celebrating an old tradition, which is the Passover. Now, most of you may not be familiar with how a Passover is actually celebrated, But a traditional Passover meal would uh, function kind of like a service. So there's like a liturgy. There's an order of service that is to be followed. And this liturgy would include things like drinking four cups of wine, uh, reciting certain blessings over the food, uh, singing what is known as Hallel Psalms, and even a time to answer children's questions. And... This meal had a purpose, and one of the purposes was so that generations would remember what God had done when he brought Israel out of bondage from the Egyptians. And so the person leading this Passover meal would usually be the head of the household, and he would pronounce blessing over the food. You have bread, you have herbs, you have a roasted lamb, you have these four cups of wine that you would drink, and every time you drink a cup of wine, you remember one of God's promises in Exodus 6, so... Uh, As you drink the first cup of wine, they would remember that God said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Then you would drink a second cup of wine, and they would remember when God said, I will deliver you from slavery. Then they would drink a third cup, and they would remember when God said, I will redeem you with outstretched arm. And they would drink a last fourth cup, and they would remember when God said, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, just as a side note, this is a passage we're going to look at next week. But uh, when I read about the Passover service, it makes total sense why the disciples are so tired, right? They just drank four cups of wine and had all this food. And so they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus wants them to pray. Of course he would be tired, right? But anyway, the purpose of this meal, as I said before, is uh, to remember what God did, how God saved them, how God freed them from the oppression of the Egyptians, how God raised Moses to lead a people out of slavery, how God would render justice upon those who oppressed the people of Israel. And perhaps the most dramatic part of this meal is when they would remember how God passed over the firstborn in Jewish homes, particular homes that had the blood of lambs painted on the doorposts. You see, they had been celebrating the Passover for probably over a thousand years. And there's a structure to this. And even though there may be variations in how it was celebrated over the years, the essence of it is the same. The purpose of this meal is to remember what happens in the Exodus. Okay, That's the old tradition that they're celebrating. Now here's the thing. As Jesus leads this Passover meal, he departs from tradition. And he begins to infuse new meaning into this meal. And this is our second point. If you look at verses 22 and 23, Jesus takes bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you'll recognize these words as part of the words we say when we partake in communion. But if you're a Jewish person, you're going to be shocked by what Jesus says here, because he says something that nobody would ever say during a Passover meal. Jesus says this, This is my body. This is my body. Now normally someone would say, this bread is the bread of our Father's affliction in the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, this is my body. In other words, what he's saying is, this is my affliction. This is my suffering. And then he takes the, this cup of wine, which is probably the third cup of wine in this Passover celebration, and he says this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And again, Jesus personalizes it here and he take, as he takes this cup of wine. He doesn't say this is, uh, this is the blood of the lamb which is poured out for many. He says this is my blood. You see, it's Jesus' blood here that ratifies this new covenant. Now in the Bible, a covenant, it's an agreement of sorts between two parties and it binds these two parties together. And so after God rescued Israel from Egypt, he makes a covenant with them, and you read about it in Exodus chapter 24. And the way a covenant would be sealed is by the sprinkling of blood. So when you read Exodus 24, what Moses does in order to ratify this covenant, he takes the blood of animals, he sprinkles it on the altar, and then he takes blood and he throws it on the people, right? He sprinkles it on the people. And that's how a covenant is ratified in the ancient world. Now, Jesus is saying that a new covenant is now being ratified, only it's not the blood of animals, it's not the blood of lamb, but it's his own very Blood. Now we're going to come back to this idea of covenant a little bit later, but I want you to notice something important here. You see, at a traditional Passover meal, you have bread, you have wine, but what's the main course? You're supposed to have a lamb, right? You're supposed to have a lamb. The lamb was an important part of Passover because it's the blood of the lamb that would make God pass over certain homes and spare the firstborn. But at this Passover... There is no lamb. Why? Because Jesus himself is the lamb. Because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who would die on a cross. Jesus is the suffering servant that would be promised in Isaiah 53. It is his body that would be broken. It is his blood that would be shed. He is the sacrificial lamb that would ultimately be an atonement for our sin. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down by some of the theological concepts here like atonement uh, so let me try to illustrate it. Atonement is something that we actually want and something that everybody actually needs. Uh, when I was flying to China, I downloaded some audiobooks And one of the audiobooks that I listened to was uh, Fresh Off the Boat, the memoir by Eddie Huang. And uh, it's, it's actually more interesting to listen to it because as he's telling his stories, he's laughing at his own stories. So I was just chuckling as I was listening to it on the airplane. Uh, One of the things he says in his book is uh, when he was growing up, and anytime he disappointed, anytime he did something wrong, right? His mom would always say this to him uh, that you not only are disappointing me, you're not only letting me down, but you're letting down thousands of years of Chinese history, right? You're letting down all of your ancestors. And so think about that, right? Think about the burden and the weight uh, a little kid has on their shoulders hearing that. That, oh no, I'm not just disappointing mom and dad, but grandma and grandpa and so on and so on. And when you're carrying such heavy burden and such heavy guilt, ultimately what you need is you need to be free from it. You need atonement. And there's basically two ways to atone for guilt and for shame. The first way is you try to make atonement by yourself on your own. Uh, and how do we usually do this? Well, we do it by the way we live our lives. We try to become more successful. We try to make our family proud of our success. Right? We try to do all these things and live up to a certain standard so that those thousands of years of uh, ancestors that were disappointed, we can somehow make them proud again. And by the way we live our life, we can atone for our failures. The second way you can atone for that guilt is by having somebody else take your place and... Uh, You know, I wonder if maybe this is one of the reasons why parents put so much pressure on their children. Uh, Maybe in some weird way, it's a way to atone for their own sense of guilt, maybe their own sense of shame, and maybe it's through their children that you kind of restore uh, the family name, the good name. Who knows? But in the end, we all want atonement. In the end, we all need it. In this meal, Jesus is saying the second way of atonement is possible. There is a way that someone else can atone for our guilt and take our place. There is a way that someone else can restore our good name. That person is Jesus. He is able to take our place, and that's what it means for him to be the sacrificial lamb. He is willing to take our guilt and to take our shame. He is willing to pay the penalty that our sins deserve by ultimately dying upon a cross. And that is the meaning that ultimately we are supposed to see in this final meal And we're supposed to see that Jesus is the Lamb who would be sacrificed, who would be slain for us. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb? And uh, I think it means at least two things. Uh, I think first it means this, that there is actually a better exodus. You see, as glorious as the first exodus was, as the people of Israel were rescued from slavery from the Egyptians, from the bondage of the Egyptians, this new exodus is... Far greater, only it's not freedom from the bondage of the Egyptians, it's freedom from the bondage of sin. Now, I think the average person in New York would probably actually have a easier time seeing the power of God in the first exodus, uh, but not so much in this new exodus. You see, in the first exodus, there's this clear enemy of oppression. It's the Egyptians uh, when you t- When you t- begin to talk about things like bondage to sin. Uh, I think that's when you begin to lose people. Sin, right? What is that? I don't feel enslaved to sin. Uh, there's no simple definition uh, as to what sin is because there's many dimensions. But I will say this. Uh, sin is not simply uh, a single act of moral transgression. Uh, it's more than just a specific action. Sin is a power that enslaves us. And when we use a language of bondage and slavery, we have to ultimately realize that it's talking about power. Someone who is in bondage is a slave because he or she lacks power against their oppressor. And although it's easy to see how Israel was enslaved to Egypt, I think sometimes we don't really see how we can be enslaved to sin. So let me try to illustrate it. Uh, here's what I think. Maybe we uh, need to be a little bit more self-aware because these days, uh, At least I meet a lot of people who actually believe that they're very good people. And when you talk about things like sin, they don't really understand why the Bible keeps calling us sinners. Uh, It's it's a little bit offensive, actually. I don't consider myself a sinner, so stop calling me a sinner, right? And some people will say, well, look at this. I'm not a Christian, so don't hold me to your Christian standards. So somebody in New York might say, I, I don't believe that sex outside of the context of marriage is uh, such a wrong thing, so don't hold me to that and call me a sinner by that standard. Someone in Africa might say, I don't believe lying is wrong. It's just the way it is in Africa, so don't hold me to that standard and call me a sinner. Or someone in China might say, you know, I don't think bribing a, a government official is such a wrong thing. That's just the way things are done in China, so don't hold me to that. Don't call me a sinner based on your Christian standards. And I would say, okay, fine. We don't have to go by a Christian standard of morality, but we should at least admit that everybody has some kind of standard of morality. And whether it's to be nice and kind to everyone, whether it's to be tolerant of everyone, whether it's to be good to your family and loyal to your friends, everyone has a certain standard by which we believe everybody else should live by. Now, if you were on a reality TV show, and every minute of your life was recorded, uh, my question would be this. What would the audience see? Would they see somebody who is meeting their own standards of morality, or would they see somebody who's actually not meeting even their own standards? Uh, I would hazard to say uh, most people are probably not even meeting their own standards, whether it's a Christian standard or not. Uh, And if we're very self-aware, I think that's something that we're going to realize. And that's why more education is not necessarily going to translate into a morally better society because our problem is not a lack of knowledge or a lack of education. Even though we might know what's right from wrong, there's still a power over us where we still do that which is wrong. And the Bible would call that power the power of sin over us. And the Bible would say we are enslaved to sin. And so in this meal... Jesus is announcing a new exodus, and he is saying that we can actually now be free from this power of sin from the bondage of sin, because Jesus again is this sacrificial lamb. Now that probably needs a little bit more explanation, but I got to move on so the second thing that the fact that Jesus is a lamb, uh, what it means for us is it also tells us that there is a new Passover, right there's a new Passover in the first Passover, God delayed death through the blood of lambs. The firstborn were spared from death that night, but here's the thing, they would eventually die. (laughs) Whether it's an old age or whether it's by some tragic event, uh, they eventually all died. So in a way, the first Passover, all it really did was it delayed their death. But in the new Passover, God doesn't simply delay death. He conquers it. He defeats it. He gets rid of it. See, the problem with the blood of animals is that they're never good enough to atone for sin. And this is something that the book of Hebrews, right, chapter 9 and 10, makes very clear. Animal sacrifices were never good enough to take away the penalty for our sin. At best, they could delay the consequences of sin, but they could never completely abolish it. But Jesus now is announcing a new Passover in which death would not simply pass over us for a moment, but that death would pass over us forever. That's what the resurrection is all about. Now, I don't know if you've ever met somebody who uh, you know, was dying or somebody who's been experiencing somebody else uh, who recently died. Or um, I will say this. In my experience, I, I think a lot of people try to rationalize and say, well, death is a natural thing. Uh, death happens to everybody. Um, and they try to comfort themselves with that thought. Uh, But I don't know if thinking that death is natural is ever that comforting of a thought. Uh, I think the way that people feel when they are confronted with death, that natural reaction, that emotional, that gut-wrenching reaction is probably closer to the truth of the reality of death than we think. See, death, it's not natural. It's not part of God's original design. Death is a chaotic enemy and we're not supposed to be comfortable with it, right? We're not supposed to be okay with it. We're supposed to realize that it's an enemy that needs to be dealt with. And death only comes because it's the penalty for sin. Death only comes because of disobedience. And so the reason that death can now pass over us forever is this. The penalty for our sin has been paid. Again, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He has paid the penalty. He is the atonement. And because of that, in this new Passover, death passes over us forever. And finally, this is our third and last point. This passage teaches us that there is going to be a future celebration. You see, in verse 25, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, in this Last Supper, it's interesting, Jesus also has an eye towards the future. Uh, He has an eye towards a future supper, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if you read Revelation 9, which I read in the beginning of the service, uh, John hears the voices of the multitude. He hears the voices of many, presumably the same many that Jesus' blood is poured out for, and they're crying out praises to God and rejoicing in the fact that the marriage of the Lamb has come And his bride has made herself ready. And so the angel says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, anytime we throw a big party, we have to come up with a list of people to invite, do we not? And when we think about the criteria of people that we want to invite to this party, we usually think about the type of people we want at that party. Uh, We want to think about the people that we like, people that we think are cool. Uh, There's a fly in my head. people who have been good to us, and so forth. In other words, we like to invite people that we find worthy of being invited because they have something to offer to us, do we not? But do you know what kind of people will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Think about this. Jesus' disciples, with the exception of Judas, will be at the supper. And who are Jesus' disciples? Are they these great people? (laughs) No, not at all. Even though they're his closest earthly companions, they all end up abandoning Jesus during his darkest moment. Jesus predicts it, right? He says in verse 27, you will all fall away. Then he tells Peter in verse 30, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And yet they are going to be at the supper. How can this be? Well, let's return to this idea of a covenant. We said that a covenant is a special kind of relationship that binds two parties. And I think the closest thing uh, that we can see by way of analogy to that kind of relationship is probably a marriage relationship. Uh, when one person is unfaithful to their spouse, they've broken that marriage covenant. And the only way that that marriage covenant can be preserved is if the other spouse decides to forgive the unfaithful one. And I don't have the time to go through the dynamics of forgiveness, but In forgiveness, there is always a debt to be paid. Someone always has to pay it. Forgiveness says, I will take the pain, I will take the shame of your actions and release you from your debt. And if forgiveness is given, then marriage can be preserved. And this is what Jesus does when his blood is poured out for many. His blood is paying our debt. His blood is paying the penalty for our unfaithfulness to the covenant. He drinks the cup of judgment that we are supposed to drink. And because of that, we can be invited to this final supper in heaven. And therefore, isn't it fitting that the final meal is called the marriage supper of the Lamb? We have this idea of covenant in the word marriage. We have this idea of celebration in the supper. And we have the reason that we can partake in the celebration in the Lamb. And even in Jesus' darkest hour where we see his disciples' worst moments, there's still hope. One day, Jesus says, he will drink from the cup, but it won't be a cup of wrath, it'll be the cup of glory. And he will drink it in the kingdom of God because he was first willing to drink this cup of wrath on our behalf. Now what does this mean? Well, if you're a Christian, Let me say this. Do you realize that you have an invitation to the most glorious celebration ever? You have an invitation to the most wonderful party ever, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if we have that invitation, what does that mean for us? I'll say this. That means you should live your life in preparation for that meal. What does that mean? Ready yourselves by seeking holiness and righteousness. Not in order to get invited, but because you are invited. This is something I think um, you don't hear a lot of. Emphasis on growing in holiness, right? Emphasis on sanctification, emphasis on purity and righteousness, so let me take a moment and say something about it right now. You know, in Revelation 19, it says this, that we are going to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And I think the imagery there is this, that our wardrobe is going to be that of holiness and righteousness. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, when people get married, I know some grooms and some brides, what they begin to do before their wedding day is they prepare. Right? How do they prepare? They prepare their bodies. They begin to exercise. They begin to run. They begin to try to lose weight. Why? Because they want to make sure they fit in their wedding attire on their wedding day. They're preparing themselves for that day for the clothes that they are about to wear. If the clothes that we are going to wear in this marriage supper of the Lamb is holiness and righteousness, how much more do we need to prepare our bodies for that as well? If you believe that this is a final supper that we are heading towards, take holiness seriously. Right? Take purity seriously. Take righteousness seriously. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure where you are in your faith, let me say something important. You don't get invited to the supper based on your merits. You don't get invited to this supper based on whether you're worthy or not. You don't get rejected from the supper based on your past moral failures. Were Jesus' disciples worthy? No, they weren't. Do you know how you get invited to the supper? Uh, I think the first step is this. You simply receive. You receive. See, what does Jesus say after he broke the bread? He doesn't say do. He says take, right? Take. What then do you have to do? It's not do, but it's to receive. It is to receive Jesus. It is to receive the gospel. It is to receive this message and to know that his body was broken for you, that his blood was shed for you, that he is the sacrificial lamb that you need. And so receive. And finally, I say this to everybody. I know that this, uh, this story, the passion narrative, might be familiar to you, but don't let its familiarity rob you of its beauty if you're wondering why the cross doesn't change our lives, doesn't change our hearts in the way that it ought to, maybe it's not an issue with a lack of knowledge. Maybe it's actually an issue with not actually seeing the beauty of it. Uh, I said this a couple weeks ago, uh, but I think beauty is so important. Beauty is actually that which impacts our hearts the most. Beauty is something that we need to see and experience. And if you don't see the beauty of the cross, uh, perhaps we should be praying, God, show us the beauty of the cross. Uh, One time I thought it was beautiful, but uh, these days I don't see its beauty. Help me to see the beauty of the cross. And as God reveals the beauty of the cross, the beauty of his sacrifice, I am sure our hearts will be changed. I am sure we're going to yearn for this day, this final supper, where we will celebrate and sing hallelujah with the multitude and join with the great roar up in heaven. Let's bow our heads. Time of private meditation as a worship team leads us.